Chapter Four of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Four. Fourth of July in an immigrant party. Open letter of Lansford Hastings. George Donner elected captain of party bound for California. Entering the great desert. Insufficient supply of food. Volunteers commissioned by my father to hasten to Sutter's Fort for relief. On the second of July, we met Mr. Bryant returning to prevail on some man of our company to take the place of Mr. Kendall of the bridal party, who had heard such evil reports of California from returning trappers that his courage had failed, and he had deserted his companions and joined the Oregon Company. Hiram Miller, who had driven one of my father's wagons from Springfield, took advantage of this opportunity for a faster method of travel and left with Mr. Bryant. The following evening we encamped near the reinforced bridal party, and on the morning of the 4th, Messrs. Russell and Bryant came over to help us to celebrate our national holiday. A salute was fired at sunrise, and later a platform of boxes was arranged in a grove close by, and half-past nine o'clock everyone in camp was in holiday attire and ready to join the procession which marched around the camp and to the adjacent grove. There, patriotic songs were sung, the Declaration of Independence was read, and Colonel Russell delivered an address. After enjoying a feast prepared by the women of the company, and drinking to the health and happiness of friends and kindred in reverent silence, with faces toward the east, our guests bade us a final good-bye and Godspeed. We had on many occasions entertained eastward-bound rovers whose various experiences on the Pacific coast made them interesting talkers. Those who favored California extolled its excellence and had scant praise for Oregon. Those who loved Oregon described its marvelous advantages over California and urged home-seekers to select it as the wiser choice. Consequently, as we neared the parting of the ways, some of our people were in perplexity which to choose. On the 19th of July, we reached the Little Sandy River, and there found four distinct companies encamped in neighborly groups, among them our friends, the Thorntons, and Reverend Mr. Cornwall. Most of them were listed for Oregon, and were resting their cattle preparatory to entering the long dry drive of forty miles known as Greenwood's Cutoff. There my father and others deliberated over a new route to California. They were led to do so by an open letter, which had been delivered to our company on the 17th by special messenger on horseback. The letter was written by Lansford W. Hastings, author of Travel Among the Rocky Mountains through Oregon and California. It was dated and addressed at the headwaters of the Sweetwater to all California emigrants now on the road, and intimated that on account of war between Mexico and the United States, the government of California would probably oppose the entrance of American emigrants to its territory, and urge those on the way to California to concentrate their numbers and strength, 
and to take the new and better route which he had explored from Fort Bridger by way of the south end of Salt Lake. It emphasized the statement that this new route was nearly 200 miles shorter than the old one by way of Fort Hall, and the headwaters of Ogden's River, and that he himself would remain at Fort Bridger to give further information and to conduct the immigrants through to the settlement. The proposition seemed so feasible that after a cool deliberation and discussion a party was formed to take the new route. My father was elected captain of this company, and from that time on it was known as the Donner Party. It included our original Sangamon folks, except Mrs. Keyes and Hiram Miller, and the following additional members, Patrick Breen, wife and seven children, Louis Kesseberg, wife and two children, Mrs. Lavina Murphy, a widow and five children, William Eddy, wife and two children, William Pike, wife and two children, William Foster, wife and child, William McCutcheon, wife and child, Mr. Wolfinger and wife, Patrick Dolan, Charles Stanton, Samuel Shoemaker, Hardcoop, Spitzer, Joseph Reinhardt, James Smith, Walter Heron, and Luke Halloran. While preparing to break camp, the last named had begged my father for a place in our wagon. He was a stranger to our family, afflicted with consumption, too ill to make the journey on horseback, and the family with whom he had traveled thus far could no longer accommodate him. His forlorn condition appealed to my parents, and they granted his request. All the companies broke camp and left the little Sandy on the 20th of July. The Oregon Division, with a section for California, took the right-hand trail for Fort Hall, and the Donner Party, the left-hand trail to Fort Bridger. After parting from us, Mr. Thornton made the following note in his journal. July 20, 1846. The Californians were much elated and in fine spirits, with the prospect of better and nearer road to the country of their destination. Mrs. George Donner, however, was an exception. She was gloomy, sad, and dispirited in view of the fact that her husband and others could think of leaving the old road and confide in a statement of a man of whom they knew nothing, but was probably some selfish adventurer. Five days later, the Donner party reached Fort Bridger, and were informed by Hastings' agent that he had gone forward as pilot to a large emigrant train, but had left instructions that all later arrivals should follow his trail. Further, that they would find an abundant supply of wood, water, and pasturage along the whole line of road except one dry drive of thirty miles, or forty at most, that they would have no difficult canyons to pass, and that the road was generally smooth, level, and hard. At Fort Bridger, my father took driver for one of his wagons, John Baptiste Trubaud, a sturdy young mountaineer, the offspring of a French father, a trapper, and a Mexican mother. John claimed to have a knowledge of the languages and customs of various Indian tribes through whose country we should have to pass, and urged that this knowledge might prove helpful to the company. The trail from the fort was all that could be desired, and on the 3rd of August we reached the crossing of Weber River, where it breaks through the mountains into the canyon. There we found a letter from Hastings, stuck in the cleft of a projecting stick 
near the roadside. It advised all parties to encamp and await his return for the purpose of showing them a better way than through the canyon of Weber River, stating that he had found the road over which he was then piloting a train very bad, and feared other parties might not be able to get their wagons through the canyon leading to the valley of the Great Salt Lake. He referred, however, to another route, which he declared to be much better, as it avoided the canyon altogether. To prevent unnecessary delays, Misters Reed, Pike, and Stanton volunteered to ride over the new route, and, if advisable, bring Hastings back to conduct us to the open valley. After eight days, Mr. Reed returned alone, and reported that he and his companions overtook Hastings with his train near the south end of Salt Lake, that Hastings refused to leave his train, but was finally induced to go with them to the summit of a ridge of the Wasatch Mountains, and from there point out as best he could the directions to be followed. While exploring on the way back, Mr. Reed had become separated from Misters Pike and Stanton, and now feared they might be lost. He himself had located landmarks and blazed trees, and felt confident that, by making occasional short clearings, we could get our wagons over the new route as outlined by Hastings. Searchers were sent ahead to look up the missing men, and we immediately broke camp and resumed travel. The following evening we were stopped by a thicket of quaking ash, through which it required a full day's hard work to open a passageway. Thence our course lay through a wilderness of rugged peaks and rock-bound canyons until a heavily obstructed gulch confronted us. Believing that it would lead out to the Utah River Valley, our men again took their tools and became roadmakers. They had toiled six days when W. F. Graves, wife and eight children, J. Fostick, wife and child, and John Snyder, with their teams and cattle, overtook and joined our train. With the assistance of these three fresh men, the road, eight miles in length, was completed two days later. It carried us out into a pretty mountain dell, not the opening we had expected. Fortunately, we here met the searchers returning with Misters Pike and Stanton. The latter informed us that we must turn back over our newly made road and cross a farther range of peaks in order to strike the outlet to the valley. Sudden fear of being lost in the trackless mountains almost precipitated a panic, and it was with difficulty that my father and other cool-headed persons kept excited families from scattering rashly into greater dangers. We retraced our way, and after five days of alternate traveling and road-making, ascended a mountain so steep that six and eight yoke of oxen were required to draw each vehicle up the grade, and most careful handling of the teams was necessary to keep the wagons from toppling over as the straining cattle zigzagged to the summit. Fortunately, the slope on the opposite side was gradual, and the last wagon descended to camp before darkness obscured the way. The following morning, we crossed the river which flows from Utah Lake to Great Salt Lake, and found the trail of the Hastings party. We had been thirty days in reaching that point, which we had hoped to make in ten or twelve. The tedious delays and high altitude wrought distressing changes in Mr. Hallerhan's condition, 
and my father and mother watched over him with increasing solicitude. But despite my mother's unwearying ministrations, death came on the 4th of September. Suitable timber for a coffin could not be obtained, so his body was wrapped in sheets and carefully enclosed in a buffalo robe, then reverently laid to rest in a grave on the shore of the Great Salt Lake, near that of a stranger who had been buried by the Hastings party a few weeks earlier. Mr. Hallerhan had appreciated the tender care bestowed upon him by my parents, and had told members of our company that in the event of his death on the way, his trunk and its contents and his horse and its equipments should belong to Captain Donner. When the trunk was opened, it was found to contain clothing, keepsakes, a Masonic emblem, and fifteen hundred dollars in coin. A new inventory, taken about this time, disclosed the fact that the company's stock of supplies was insufficient to carry it through to California. A call was made for volunteers who should hasten on horseback to Sutter's Fort, procure supplies, and returning, meet the train en route. Mr. Stanton, who was without family, and Mr. McCutcheon, whose wife and child were in the company, heroically responded. They were furnished with necessaries for their personal needs, and with letters to Captain Sutter explaining the company's situation and petitioning for supplies which would enable it to reach the settlement. As the two men rode away, many anxious eyes watched them pass out of sight, and many heartfelt prayers were offered for their personal safety and the success of their mission. In addressing this letter to Captain Sutter, my father followed the general example of immigrants to California in those days. For Sutter, great-hearted and generous, was the man to whom all turned in distress or emergencies. He himself had emigrated to the United States at an early age, and after a few years spent in St. Louis, Missouri, had pushed his way westward to California. There he negotiated with the Russian government for its holdings on the Pacific coast, and took them over when Russia evacuated the country. He then established himself on the vast estate so acquired, which, in memory of his parentage, he called New Helvetia. The Mexican government, however, soon assumed his liabilities to the Russian government, and exercised sovereignty over the territory. Sutter's position, nevertheless, was practically that of a potentate. He constructed the well-known fort near the present site of the city of Sacramento as protection against Indian depredations, and it became a trading center and rendezvous for incoming immigrants. End of chapter 4